Let's read the Word of God and then pray. Verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. Father, give us ears to hear the awesomeness of this. And Father, may we be overwhelmed. Father, I pray that each and every one of us is staggered by this truth. And that, Father, when we start looking at it, I pray that your spirit in a most magnificent way will peel back the layers that we will stand in awe to your glory and praise. Christ's name. Amen. I went back a few years to things that I have looked at and heard and seen and dealt with. And um, I went back to a story that I had read and then I'd heard it used in an illustration in another sermon. And it had to do with a Persian monarch. Okay, we would call him a king. Um, The Persians would call him a shah. Uh, And he reigned in a time of great Persian prosperity. But he was a compassionate ruler, compassionate Shah. And he had a heart for the poor. Normally in a monarchy, you have the noble line and then everybody else. And he had a heart for the commoners. And so he decided one day that he would dress as a poor man, as a commoner. And his purpose was to leave the palace and to try to befriend a poor person and make this poor commoner a friend. That was his plan. And he wanted to dress the part to um, see if it was actually possible. He went forth and he found a man who was a stoker of fires. And basically what he did, he worked in a furnace and he would have containers full of coals that he would keep hot and they would pass them to house to house to house so that people could either cook with them, keep their houses warm, and then large amounts would go into the palace so the palace would always have fire. And they would pass them around in these containers. But this man's job was not to pass around the containers. This man's job was to keep the fires going. And he would fill the containers and then people would come and pick it up. He worked in a place that was noted for its ashes, for its soot, and for its smoke. That's what he lived in. That's what he was surrounded by. They call him a fireman. He attends the fires. And if you've ever been around fires, you know that wonderful smell and how it helps your eyes because they're always flushing themselves. And and you are in soot and ash, and it doesn't really matter what you do. It's sort of like when a mechanic works on a car, their hands get greasy. Okay, And if he's not working on the car, then his hands won't be greasy. If you're going to work in coals and in ash, you're going to be covered in coal and ash. And this is what the Shaw found. So the Shah went into this little oven that this man worked in, and he sat down beside him and began talking. He was dressed as a commoner, and the fireman shared his bread and his water for the lunch. 
His bread was excruciatingly stale. There's no moisture in an oven. So even fresh bread within mere moments would have become very, very hard. The shawl came back to him day after day after day after day and spent time with him day in and day out. During the course of this elongated visits and keep coming back to this man, the Shah's heart was filled with sympathy that at times when he would return back to his palace covered in soot and the smell of smoke, he longed to be back with the fireman, this tender of this ash. He wanted to share the common tough life He wanted time together. They gave each other counsel. They gave each other experience. A great, huge bond of friendship was growing. And this fireman opened up his heart to this who he thought was a commoner. And there was a mutual love between these two men. And a tremendous friendship over several years grew as this Shaw would go and spend as much time as he could with this tender of the fires. At last, the Shaw, the king, knew he needed to tell the man who he was. So one day he went down to meet with him again, knowing that this friendship was both ways. He told this commoner, that he was the king. And he looked at him and he says, what gift may I give you now that we are friends? See, you have thought I am poor. You have thought I was one of the common people and I am not. I am the Shah. I am the emperor. What would you like? I can make you rich. I can make you noble. I can give you a city. Anything you want to my very dearest friend. Do you understand what I'm saying? This man covered in soot and ash, the smell of smoke from years of tending these fires said, Yes, my Lord, what is this you have done to leave your palace and to leave your glory and sit with me in this dark, smelly place and partake of this stale bread, partake of this life, and even cared whether my heart is glad or my heart is sorrowful? Dear Lord, Dear Emperor, even you can give nothing more precious than that. Others do bestow riches. But you, Shaw, you have given 
yourself. I ask one thing only from you, my king. Never withdraw your friendship. Is that the gospel? Is it what Jesus did? The king left his throne to come down to dwell among common man. To give them his life and his friendship. That's the statement of verse 9. In a Persian story. It's a simple text. If you read the text, it's profound. It's amazing. It is a text that I am convinced that if I preached on this text every day until the second coming of Jesus Christ, I could not exhaust it. And what's amazing is we're in the middle of chapters 8 and 9. And at chapters 8 and 9 are nothing but a pragmatic section on giving of your money for the support of the saints. Here's how you do it. Here's what it looks like. Here's the attitude in which you do it. It's Paul does this every once in a while. I love Paul. It's going to be so cool just to hang out with him. It's like when you were dealing with the first part of 2 Corinthians. Remember, he was talking about the issue of the new covenant, and we are now ministers of the new covenant. And he's going through and he's explaining all this to us. And he's saying, here's how it works. Here's how it looks. Here's how it sounds. Okay, very pragmatic. And then in chapter 5, verse 21, he says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And you're like, wow, <laughs> gee, many crickets. We just went from the writing of Moses to the, the, the law is death to boom. Here is our sacrifice. Chapter 8, verse 9, there's 21 Greek words here. And yet, in 21 Greek words, he deals with eternity, he deals with time, and then he goes back to eternity again. And you know what? Let's be realistic. An easy reading of this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that through, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. It's easy to understand that. And yet, it's profound. You know what? It's not a confusing text. It's straightforward. But it's like I said, I am not sure that you could exhaust that text. And I'm convinced that a lot of what I see in the evangelical church today is a complete lack of care of that verse. One reading, we understand what it says. But you know what? Until eternity, we will not understand what all is involved in it. 21 words in the Greek, and it is the complete story of Jesus Christ. In 21 words. From riches to poverty. From poverty to riches. And you know what? It's the complete story of Jesus Christ. But do you understand that it is the complete story of every believer? 
And it's all in that one little verse. Christ is revealed in that verse, and so is every believer in him is revealed in that verse. Now, you got to keep this in mind, because when I read this, you just you're cruising through it. And, you know, you guys know that I read Second Corinthians every day and have now for uh, a long time to 10, 10 years, I guess, nine years, something like that. Every day I read it. And I which means I've read that verse a few times. Okay, And yet you just kind of go over it and you think, well, yeah, I know that and just keep going. But when I look at it in the flow of this letter, this letter is a letter of reconciliation between a church that really hurt the Apostle Paul. He had re- they had received that second, the severe letter from Titus, and they had repented and restored the relationship with the Apostle Paul. And that was dealt with in chapter 7. And then chapter 8 and 9, he says, now that that is dealt with and that relationship is all better, let's get about the task that is at hand. It is on the issue of giving, a subject that is dear to every Christian. Specific here is the poor saints in Jerusalem. He's asking the Gentiles to give to the Jewish church in Jerusalem. The Jewish church was extraordinarily poor. The Jewish church was the first mega church. And yet it was one of the most poor churches. See, the pilgrims had stayed. And they needed to be cared for by the saints who were in Jerusalem. Because many of them will lose everything by confessing and identifying with Christ. Lose their jobs, lose their families. When you identify with Christ at the time of the birth of the church, you lost it all. It cost you everything right off the bat. I had a very dear friend of mine. He's in glory right now. Norm, some of you guys have been in the church a long time. Norm Magnus, uh, Baltimore Jew. Nah, don't make fun of me. That's what he called himself. Okay. And when he came to Jesus Christ, his family had a funeral for him. And they had a tomb, a grave, and a headstone put in the local cemetery in Baltimore with his name on it and the date that he walked to Christ. He was born and he died and they had no more contact with Norm ever again. In Jerusalem, it would have been that way. It would have been widespread poverty. Most of the believers there would have lost their jobs. Many of them never went back. They had pilgrimaged into Jerusalem for Pentecost, and they didn't go back because they wouldn't like to go back to the Second Baptist Church of Crete. And if they were going to stay in the church, they had to stay in Jerusalem. Most were poor. Those who did have possessions sold them to help with this massive number. And many who would sell their possessions would become impoverished in the process of meeting the needs of the poor. So Paul was running around the Roman Empire collecting from Gentile churches money to take to Jerusalem. One of these is the church in Corinth. Verse 6 of chapter 8, he says, So we urge Titus 
that as he had previously made in the beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. They had already begun. Verse 10, I give my opinion in this matter for this is to your advantage who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do this. But now finish doing it also so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may be also the completion of it by your abilities. So they had started a year before this writing of Second Corinthians to take up this offering. They'd already begun to give. That's fascinating because there was a problem in that church. I mean, if you go read first Corinthians, you think, oh, my Lord. I mean, the first six chapters, he blasts them. Then in chapter seven, he says, now concerning the things that you guys were questioning me about. False teachers had crept in after Paul had left and were accusing him of error. There was confusion in the church. Anytime you have confusion in the teaching of the church, the leadership of the church, then giving goes down because the people don't understand. They don't have confidence in what God is doing. That is what had happened in the church in Corinth. Paul is telling them in verse 11, finish what you started. Finish what you started. If you remember back a few years ago, 1 Corinthians 16, 2, he says, here's the plan for giving on the first day of the week of every week and do it weekly. Give. Okay, first day of the week to a Jew is what? Sunday. Saturday is the end of the week. First day is Sunday. So we come together on Sunday so that we can give on the first day of the week. Do it weekly. And 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he's encouraged him to continue this. All right, now again, we've, we've looked at giving in depth. I mean, in just eight verses. That it is voluntary. It is an attitude of the heart. Giving is a heart condition. Whatever and whenever is the amount is completely up to the individual. It is the love of the soul. It is the love of the heart. Paul is encouraging the Corinthians, be generous, be generous. In the first eight verses, he points to the churches of Macedonia, remember? Verse 1, I want to make known to you the grace of God which is given to the churches of Macedonia. We looked at their attitudes and he's comparing them, he's contrasting it. The generosity of the Macedonians, basically there's three churches. Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And they had given. Not only that, he tells us they were urging Paul. Let us be partakers. Remember? It was by grace. They understood it. One of the things that I think that is troubling to me as a pastor today is that I look at the church and we sing about grace. We smile about grace. 
And we all know that it is by grace through faith I've been saved. But what I have watched in people's lives is we have no idea what grace is. We trample on it constantly. We take it for granted. And when you take grace for granted, all of a sudden it's not grace anymore. You think it was due you. Oh, Jesus like my blonde hair and blue eyes. That's why he saved me. No, he saved you because of grace. The Macedonians understood this. The Macedonians embraced this. They said, do you know that we are saved and it was purely a gracious act of God? He didn't have to save us. And he wouldn't have been wrong to not save us. I buried two people this week. Two. One was 82 and one was 32. And everybody's asking me. But what about their salvation? I said, don't worry about it. What? They're dead. What about the survivors? Perhaps you should have a little fire under your britches to say they're survivors. Well, that ain't very loving. They're dead. What about purgatory? It won't open for another month. They don't make a lot of snow there. It's all natural. Do you see what I'm trying to get at? If I look at the fact that I've been saved by grace right now and I stand in that grace, I should be overwhelmed. And if I'm overwhelmed, then my circumstances are irrelevant. The Macedonians were that way. The Macedonian says we are poor. We are agonizingly poor. We live day to day and then are taxed beyond our understanding. And yet we still want to give with joy. And I want to give it out of my poverty, the depth of my poverty. They had very little. And they gave very much. They were generous. They were generous. They were sacrificial. The Macedonians were sacrificial. They gave beyond comfort. It was voluntary. They wanted to do this. Begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. If you go back and look at the grace that saved you, how can you not stand there? How can I not beg with much urging to help the saints? They understand that it was a privilege to be involved. It was not an obligation. I watch people right now who do it based on obligation. I'm obligated. I know people in churches right now who pay more money for the closer seats to the stage. That's nuts. That's nuts. There's churches that I know right now. 
The closer you are to the stage, the more the ticket costs. And I'm sitting there going, what is that? They were eagerly asking to give. Why? Because, see, when they look at their giving, the person who is standing in that grace and understanding that grace, they know it's an act of worship. I'm worshiping him. Here's how I'm going to show it. How come Zacchaeus gave 50% and the Lord says, no, I only need 10? No, he worshiped. Remember when she opened up the perfume jar? And they said, you know how many poor people you can feed with that? Nah, she's worshiping. It was her act of worship. Truth is, what we do with our money shows our character as Christians. Or lack of. It's that simple. Jesus, throughout the gospel record, uses the handling of money as a direct barometric pressure of the soul. And he concluded it with the proof of the sincerity of your love there in verse 8. It's the earnestness of others, the sincerity of your love also. What does, and I shared with you last week, love is a verb. It isn't a feeling. It isn't an emotion. It is what do you do? What do you do? Real love for the Lord will have a real love for the saints. Real love for the Lord will have a real love for the church. And it will be seen in generosity. It was seen in the Macedonians. Paul is using these two chapters to encourage the Corinthians and you and I by showing us the example of these three churches in the northern part of Greece, the Macedonians. And he's basically rolling it out there and he's saying, hey, you should be giving as the Macedonians give. They show their love by their giving. You Corinthians, you today should show your love by your giving. As Paul thinks and is writing this letter, and he's encouraging how love manifests itself in giving, his mind must go to the greatest love of all. His mind must go to the greatest love that is Christ Jesus. When you talk about love that gives, is there a greater example than Christ? Paul has been speaking of the model, the illustration of the Macedonians. It's a human model. Now he goes... Way beyond them. And that takes you back when I think about, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. The reason the Macedonians were doing it was because of the grace of God. The most generous, the most gracious, 
the most monumental giver of all. We have a little holiday thing that everybody wants presents. And we say that we're celebrating the birth of Christ. Okay? And we base our whole United States economy between Thanksgiving and Christmas. <laughs> kind of funny if you think about it. And if you talk to people, they will tell you whether they had a good Christmas or a bad Christmas based on what? What did I get? I read a book about a fighter pilot that was shot down uh, in North Vietnam and got stuck in the Hanoi Hilton. And he said the best Christmases he had, six of them, were there. And then he went through this whole book and explained why those were his best Christmases. Because he knew that the gift had been given and the realization of that gift was alive and well and comforting him through everything. And he says, that gift gave to me every day for six years. Why? Well, if you're really honest about it, if you're in a enemy prisoner of war jail cell, um, life is not really that complicated anymore. You're not worried about how many Christmas presents did I put on my MasterCard. All of a sudden it gets cleaned up. And yet the most generous gift that has ever been given is the Lord Jesus Christ. If love is, as I say, is a verb, then Christ is the greatest love and is the greatest gift of that love. Christ is the supreme example of the giving of love. Isn't he? I mean, when I look at verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can just stop right there. Do you? Do you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus wanted to make us rich. And to do that, he had to make himself poor. Now, I don't know how you cut that, but that is the definition of generous. You can't get it any better. Rich people do help poor people. Absolutely. Rarely ever, though, will they make themselves poor to help the poor. Now, think about that. We have these natural disasters and everybody wants to bail out Africa, I think. And so you get these mega millionaires and they want to do, I'll do a free concert. Well, why don't you just sell all of it? Well, no, I have to keep it moving so I can generate more funds. Really? Well, I need to be a good steward, correct? No. Christ. 
Christ gave it all up so that we would be poor. Rich give out of their riches, but they don't give to impoverish themselves. They're not going to do that. They can give sacrificially, but they'll still not impoverish themselves. Those who normally give, whether it's charitable or foundations. Have you ever, you ever wonder why they have foundations? It's a tax shelter. Please. Well, I have a charitable foundation. No, you have a charitable tax shelter. Okay, now I control the money that goes into it, and I control the money that goes out of it, and I base that on my 1099. That's why people have foundations. Why? It's I can write 100% of that money off. I don't have to spend it. I just put it in my foundation. Those who do that are no poor in their giving. But I want you to think about this. The Lord became poor that we might be rich. Now back up. Why did the Macedonians do it? Because they embraced and understood the grace of God. And we sing about it. All right? But I want you to think about this. It is easy for you and I to sit here in this room right now and talk about the grace of God, big smiles on our face, and wonder about what's going to happen tomorrow, and how am I going to get this done, and are my kids doing this, and I wonder what's happening over here. And you know what? That word grace just kind of floats through your head, and you pay no more attention to that than did I make a full three-second stop at that stop sign, or did I just kind of roll through it? And it's the same way. Look at verse 9 again. This is so awesome. Look what he does. He starts verse 9 off here. For you know. Can I stop right there? That little phrase links us back to verse 8. What was verse 8? I'm not speaking this as a command. All right. But as proving through the earnestness of others, the sincerity of your love also for you know. Wow. Remember verse 8, it is not a command. I want, I'm going to hammer this today. You have got to get a hold of this. This is not a command. For you know. I don't need to command you to do this because you know how Christ gave. What did Christ withhold from you? What have you withheld from Christ? For you, no. I love it. I don't have to command you to give graciously. You have an example that dwarfs any command Paul could give you. 
rather than doing it because of a command, do it because you see Christ illustrated in it. Because you know. The giving of Christ Jesus provides a greater incentive, a greater motivation than the command of an apostle. That's what Paul's saying. So you tie eight and nine together. You know. Now, if I wrote it, I'd say, you're not stupid about the giving of Christ. That's why I didn't write the Bible. You're not ignorant of this. You know this. You couldn't be a Christian and be ignorant of that. There's no way you can be a Christian and not understand the giving of Christ. You may not dwell on it. You may not even look at it any farther than, well, here's today. But you know of it. Every Christian knows Christ came down and gave his life. If you don't know that, you're not a Christian. That's not hard. Let's be realistic. It's the gospel. God so loved the world. You see it at every football game, every extra point and field goal. Look, they're on 316. He gave his only begotten son. Yeah, there you go. And it's good. So we listen. Well, yeah. We know that he was rich and we know that he became poor. I mean, if you think about it just from a simplicity point, deity became, took on the veil of humanity. Yeah, that's going from rags to riches, <laughs> riches to rags. Right? Ugh. So we would be made rich. So we know. And it's not beyond our knowledge. It's the essence of the gospel. Now listen. If that's the essence of the gospel. There's no need of any other motivation to give. Because that's the single greatest motivation ever launched in the history of existence. Listen, that's more motivation than trying to outgive the Macedonians. They teach much on how to give the Macedonians. But it doesn't even touch what Christ did. When you see the example of Christ, his love giving... I mean, what do you call it? Massive? Well, no, I'd say it eclipses any and all giving ever. Or that will ever be. Love, verse 8, love expresses itself in generous giving. Verse 9. Christ is the single greatest example of that. You, I, I don't have to compare that to anything. I, I don't have to motivate you. I don't have to command you to give. 
You know, people sit there and, and they said, well, Terry, I, I have had some discussions when we were ordering the Emmanuel Child Stars. I said, uh, how many did we get last year? And they said, 50. And I said, what did we get the year before? 50. And they said, what about the year before? And, you know, and all the rest of it. And I said, well, let's get 100. And they said, well, why, why you want to get 100? Because I've already been studying this and you hadn't. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> I mean, come on. Sometimes they just don't pay to be ahead of everybody. Verse 9 says, For you know, you have come to this knowledge. If you are saved, this knowledge is, yeah, I get it. I understand it completely. Absolutely. I mean, we got all the verses. Oh, John 3.16, he really likes us a lot. Okay, remember what he does with Peter? Peter, do you? Love me. And Lord, you know, I really think you're the berries. Peter, do you love me? Lord, I can't hide it in my heart. You know, I really, really, really like you. Third time he asked him, what did he say? Do you really, really, really like me? And it says, Peter wept. Duh. What else are you going to do? I have just hung on a cross for you. Do you love me that well? All who know the gospel and believe know this. All who know Christ and are related to Christ know this. All who know his selfless giving because it is the heart of our gospel. Every religion on the planet you do for God except this one. And God did for us because of his great massive love. He gave. It is the grace of our Lord. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord. It's tied into sincerity of your love in giving. In verse 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of our Lord. You know what is amazing about that phrase? It identifies the giving that Christ did as grace giving. It is free will giving. It is voluntary. It is graciously done. There are no obligations to it. There are no duties to it. It's not a fixed percent. It is not a formula. It is spontaneous giving. And that is what is at the heart of it. There are no grudges here. There's nothing here commanding you. There's nothing here compelling you. I'm not here to manipulate your emotions and show you a little starving child that you need to give $20 a month. I ain't doing that. I'm doing it because of the grace of my Lord and my Savior. Simply because we will to give it. You know why? That's how Christ gave. Remember? Not my will, 
but yours be done, Father in heaven. If there be a way to remove this cup, but not my will. He did it freely. Christ gave purely out of his love. Christ gave purely out of his mercy. Christ gave purely out of his grace. Christ gave purely out of his kindness. It was unmerited. It was spontaneous. And it was his overwhelming, divine, infinite kindness. Spontaneously, he reached into your soul and saved it because of his love. You didn't badger him into it. You didn't make a deal with him. All to undeserving sinners who were deserved of eternal damnation, eternal separation from God. That's what was deserved. That's what was fair. But on his pure love, it was an action of the Savior. It was the verb love worked out in the person of Jesus Christ. When you think about love, it is grace giving at its highest. That's what's on Paul's mind. That's why this gold ingot of verse 9 just plops right in the middle of a very pragmatic text. Do this, don't do this. Do this, don't do this. By the way, boom, you know this. He stops the flow of the first eight verses, contrasting the Macedonians and trying to motivate the Corinthians to be as the Macedonian. And he breaks out with this greatest single example of giving ever known to existence. And he's just like, wow, dude, (laughs) that's awesome. It is the giving of Christ. Remember what he said about the Macedonians? They gave liberally. You know what that means? Single focused. Single focused. They gave liberally. Remember, they had given themselves to the Lord first. Won't you do that? This is all great. I mean, you just look at it and go, yeah, duh. I got that. Liberally. Why? Because it is the grace of God. I know what was given to me. And the truth of the matter is, I love the churches in Macedonia. I've spent a lot of time in, in, in the letters, the two letters to Thessalonica uh, and also Philippi. Uh, I know that Paul considered the Bereans noble because they searched the scriptures, which is if you got the Apostle Paul saying you're noble, you're probably on a good track. Okay. I also know a little more of the history about Thessalonica and uh, how God has always had um, a church there. And uh, I think it was because if you read First and Second Thessalonians, you'll say, "Well, yeah, these guys kind of rock your universe, don't they?" They're amazing churches. Uh, I've had a couple of run-ins with pastors who explained to me the newest and most improved church growth methods. Um, they market it everywhere. They publish it all the time. It's like a book, a, a week club, or something on how to grow the church. 
And they said, well, what is your method? And I said, 1 Thessalonians, first three chapters. What? Yeah, that's how you grow the church. Read that church. That church there will rock your universe. Just read the first three chapters. I mean, then I'll tell you about chapter four, because chapter four says, now I want you to excel more. And you're like, wow, man, <laughs> I want the first three chapters. I'll deal with excel later. <laughs> and yet, if you look at the person of Jesus Christ, it's way beyond any of the churches in Macedonia or any other peoples that has ever walked this planet. He set the path. A gift that is eternal and is beyond any comparison to anything ever in creation. Christ was the gift and the giver. And he, and it's just this infinite gift. That's all it is. And he gave it all. He did not withhold any of it. He made us infinitely rich, becoming poor. For you know the grace. Okay, then, okay, so you see how that was? Grace giving, but then he gives him the incarnate God's full name Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. You know his grace based on what love is. The sincerity of God's love in the grace of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't use that a lot. But he uses it here. It is the fullness of his person. It is the fullness of his work. Lord. Curios. Ruler. Philippians 2 says he will be given a name above all names. And everybody says, well, what is that? Lord. Why? He rules all of it. It is the name that is above all names. Jesus, Yeshua, saved his people from sin. Christ, anointed of God, Messiah, King. That is all that he is and all that he has done. You know the giving of the Lord Jesus Christ. Common knowledge. Common knowledge. You know these things. He uses simple terms, people. Simple terms. He was rich. He became poor. That we might become rich. We see his riches. We see his poverty. And we see his gift. That's that outline. Three truths. They are astonishing. They are amazing. And to use my most favorite word to date, phantasmagorical. And I tell you what, if you withhold from him, I will look you in the eye and say, then you do not know. And trust me, you don't want me to say that. Why? 
As the Apostle Paul says in the flow of this text, I don't need to command you. There's no need for a command for Christians to give. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what he gave. And we'll look at these in the weeks to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for our Lord, our Savior, our Messiah. Father, thank you that uh, his giving withheld nothing. He gave it all. Father, may we here today understand the grace that you have bestowed upon us. And Father, may we never need to be commanded. May we even move to being begging and urging with much for the ability to help more of the saints. Father, may we follow our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, disciples are followers. May that be the commitment and the passion of each and every one of these people, myself. And the Father, we give willingly, joyously, generously, graciously, sacrificially, counting it a privilege. For we are children of the King. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. In Christ's name, amen.